Welcome back to the Gold Factor Podcast, your guide and gateway to a life of purpose and fulfillment. I'm your host, Bernadette Gold, transformation and high performance coach, here to lead you through another chapter of my audiobook, The Crooked Path to a Charm Life, a clairvoyant medium's journey to embracing her spiritual gifts. Now remember, each episode of season one is a new chapter in the book as we traverse the realms of the seen and the unseen. So let's dive in and continue our adventure together. It's time to think bigger, feel deeply, and act boldly. Chapter Two, Unexpected Adversity. Without divulging the horrible details, Brindy began showing signs that something was very wrong just days after the recording studio. She wouldn't go to the bathroom at daycare and withdrew from me. She shared some things with my sister while I was at work. What Brindy described to her was shocking, with unimaginable details of an event that happened while visiting her dad. I immediately took Brindy, who was only three at the time, to the sexual assault center at Children's Hospital. Shaking with fear, we waited as she was interviewed and examined. Her symptoms and rapidly changing, unexplained behavior spoke of definite signs of molestation. So many things flooded my mind and body. The counselors told me to not show emotions or cry in front of Brindy, instructing me to display as much strength as possible so I wouldn't alarm her. As the days passed, I felt everything from anger to disbelief. I wasn't sure what to believe. I didn't want to think that my little girl was violated, robbed of her innocence. As reality set in, the emotional pressure kept building. I ran a hot bath where I could cry away from the peering eyes of my daughter. I sat in the tub, praying, crying, and pleading with God. I didn't know what to think. I couldn't pull myself out of the sadness, depression, and darkness. Then, tears flowing with my head buried in my hands, I heard her sweet, innocent voice say, Don't cry, Mommy. I will tell them he didn't hurt me. At that moment, everything became real. My worst fears were confirmed. I knew I couldn't let my child see me upset, so I quickly got out of the tub, climbed in bed with her, and told her we were going to tell the truth. I reassured her that everything would work out, secretly wishing I could believe what I was saying. How could this be happening to us? Overwhelmed by sadness that gave way to anxiety and severe depression, the days that followed were painful. I constantly had panic attacks. I discovered the statistics showed two in five children would be sexually assaulted every year. Unable to relax, going to the park was impossible. Instead, I found myself counting kids in groups of five, wondering which two would become victims. My mind was a war zone, and my body a mess. Then, while waitressing at a posh French restaurant, a busload of five-year-old kids came in for a manners class. I lost it. My boss had no sympathy, leaving me no choice but to quit on the spot. Unable to breathe, I headed to the ER with chest pains, 
where they prescribed Ativan to calm the panic attacks. Everything else was a blur. I felt numb, buried my pain, and did my best to do everything I had to do each day. I wish I could say the justice system protected my daughter and me. Because she was so young, Brindy was considered pre-verbal, which eliminated her as a credible witness. The female investigator interviewed my husband first before speaking to us. She was convinced that he didn't fit the profile of an abuser or predator. He convinced her that the accusations came from me to get custody in the divorce. While no charges were filed, I was blessed with free legal representation in the divorce and custody case. Through all the pain, confusion, and sadness, Susan, my lawyer, protected us as best she could in the family court system. She filed a motion for a permanent no-contact order with the condition that a sexual deviance evaluation would have to be completed by Brindy's father, in addition to counseling before visitation would resume. Before awarding sole custody, the judge asked my ex if he understood the allegations, the restrictions, and motions, asking if he had anything to say. He shook his head side to side, refusing to speak. Dread filled my body. If I were innocent, I would defend myself, fight for my child, doing whatever it took to stay in her life. Upon his refusal to speak, the judge granted the motions, giving me sole custody. After that, we were free to move on with our lives. Waiting for the divorce and custody case to be resolved took months. I searched for answers from God, looked for affordable and free counseling, and tried my best to simply deal with life. I was on prescription anti-anxiety medication, including Zoloft for depression. Nothing felt right, and I wasn't finding the help I needed. None of the churches would offer to counsel if I was not a member. There were long waiting lists for free counseling services throughout the county. I finally found a Baptist church nearby with an ad in the yellow pages that listed spiritual counseling. I called on a whim, explaining to the pastor what had happened and how confused, angry, and desperate I was to find answers. Pastor Al immediately set an appointment for me, invited me to speak with him, emerging as an earth angel, a true divine instrument of compassion. Pastor Al and I met weekly to talk about God, my life, and my shaky faith. I was outraged and kept asking why God would allow this to happen. He patiently listened, gave me scriptures to consider, saying, Sometimes we don't know the reason, but God always has a plan. He never tried talking me out of my anger or rage. He didn't judge me for cursing or challenging his teachings. Instead, he exuded such faith and love for me, but most of all for God. He is my mind, disagreeing with the advice to submit to the abuse received by the pastor at the Christian church. So maybe the God I knew wasn't the same religious God taught about in some churches. Regardless, I wasn't comfortable referring to my God 
as God anymore. So I started calling out to Source. I will never forget that man or the help he offered me in a time of crisis. His kindness and patience were exactly what I needed to get through the trauma. Pastor Al listened, provided guidance, prayer, and parables that fed my spirit, even though I didn't recognize it at the time. I had all but given up on praying when none of my calls to the angels resulted in answers. I heard nothing, even though I desperately begged to have them appear and speak to me. It seemed my visions were gone. Considering my anger and depression, I figured God just didn't care anymore. There were no more magical synchronicities, no more clear visions, and no guidance. Overtaken by the circumstances, I had forgotten all I learned about spiritual battles, warfare, and the attacks by the legion of spirits we encountered in eastern Washington. While it took many years of healing, I finally realized that even though God is there and angels are present, we can't feel them in our moments of depression. Vibrationally, we have to raise our frequency to experience them. Access to the higher realms is difficult, if not impossible, when in a lower vibrational state. As the months passed, I began thinking of moving away, leaving the clouds of Seattle for something new. I kept having recurring dreams about living in Colorado with Brindy and what I presumed was a baby boy that was mine. Colorado was cold. I had no desire to move there and no idea why I was dreaming about it. Yet each morning, I woke from a dream about it. I heard, you have five years. Uncertain about the five-year warning, I was determined to leave Seattle. I felt alone and didn't want to be in the area with such painful memories. I needed a fresh start to put distance from the traumatic events. Since most of my family couldn't handle the court proceedings or my distress, I was left alone to forge a path of healing. When I received my tax refund, we packed up and headed for California. I had no family or ties in San Diego, making it the perfect place to start over. Since singing created my daughter's trauma, I put songwriting and singing in a box. Messages from music executives about publishing my songs were left unanswered. It would be more than 12 years before I felt like singing or writing songs again. 23 years later, while gathering old journals to tell this story, I stumbled upon both Odie and Pastor Al's business cards. It's so amazing how the universe brings things to me when I need them. Googling Pastor Al, I found he had moved to a different state, heading another church. So I sent tithe along with a thank you note to Pastor Al's current church and sent a thank you to Odie after finding them both on the internet. I believe in paying it back and paying it forward, whenever possible. Chapter 3, Tragedy Strikes Again The moving truck was packed, my car in tow, on the night of April 18, 1995. My dad, Brindy, and I began our trek to California. I had no job, no place to live, 
with just enough money to start our lives over in a new city. Getting a fresh start and leaving behind the memories of all that had happened was appealing. I'd driven to California with my dad often in early years. No stopping except for gas and potty breaks. He was a road warrior. We shared a lot of conversation. He told me how he and my Uncle Pete talked about getting cows in Oklahoma and becoming ranchers. I laughed, knowing neither had any experience with livestock, let alone farming. We talked about everything, except Brindy's abuse. Arriving in Northern California by the morning of April 19, 1995, we began hearing reports on the radio that disturbed us. At first, all we heard was some sort of tragedy had happened in Oklahoma City. But within 30 minutes, it became clear that whatever happened occurred at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Dismayed by the news of a bomb going off in Oklahoma City, we listened intently to the radio broadcasts. Uncle Pete had just moved to Oklahoma City to take a job at HUD a month before. He and his wife were still living in an extended-stay hotel. We pulled over at the first rest area to use the phone booth. This was before cell phones were in use. Dad called the extended stay in Oklahoma City only to get a busy signal. He tried for five more minutes to no avail. Finally, we decided to go on to the next rest area and try again. After several hours and many stops, Dad finally got through to Peter's wife. The news was unsettling. Peter wasn't feeling good that morning before work, but went in anyway. He hadn't been located, nor had he made contact. The bomb went off somewhere close to 9 a.m. Things were still chaotic hours later. We were several hours from arriving in Orange County when Dad decided to drop me, the moving truck, and Brindy off at my mom's house and hop a flight home to Seattle. From there, he would jump on a flight to Oklahoma City. Pete was missing, and Dad needed to be there to help in whatever way possible. Plans drastically changed, and I was on my own now. After dropping Dad at the airport, I drove the moving truck to San Diego, found an apartment and a job all in one day. Moving day was a bit of a comedy. I'm five foot two, yet pretty strong for my petite size. I emptied everything I could into our apartment alone. I carried the bed on my back, taking small steps before giving up and dragging it on the sidewalk. Leaving the love seat hanging off the back of the truck, I was exhausted, ready to give up. How was I supposed to move it alone? I sat at the back of the open truck and prayed. I pleaded, God, please send someone to help. It seemed impossible since several people drove or walked past for hours without offering a hand. Finally, snuffing out the cigarette, I was furiously puffing. I turned and was greeted by a lovely man who walked right up and asked if I needed help. I was so grateful for his offer, I started crying. Although he may have thought I was nuts, I didn't care. 
We carried the love seat into the apartment, and I was finally home. The man quietly left with a nod as I thanked him again. To this day, I don't know who the man was, or if he lived at the complex. I never saw him again. I will always wonder if he was an angel. It certainly made me wish I had asked for help sooner. Either way, my prayers were answered rather quickly. Trying to stay in touch with my dad to get updates on the search and rescue efforts became pointless. Instead, I focused my attention on setting up our new home and getting Brindy into counseling at Children's Hospital. My brother and Pete's children flew out to OKC to support the rescue efforts and wait. It took nearly two weeks for his body to be recovered and for the waiting to come to an end. Then, sadly, my Uncle Pete's remains were found, and it was time to make arrangements to put his body to rest. It seemed like world events were mirroring the circumstances I was personally reacting to. I had never noticed or paid attention to how my life was a microcosm reflection of the world's events and energies. For example, the terror of the Oklahoma City bombing and the trauma it caused for so many was reflected in my circumstances. With the revelation of Brindy's abuse, it felt like a bomb had gone off. I felt my whole world was leveled. Nothing remained but dust. I had to start over from scratch, somehow relieving this heavy burden. I had to heal both myself and my baby girl. Somehow, our family recovered, and we were all forced to move forward beyond the tragedies that struck. Yet, in the midst of it all, I received an unexpected blessing. I met my Uncle Pete's stepson, Grant, at a memorial service held in Los Angeles in his honor. Grant and I became instant friends within weeks of the move to San Diego. He lived in Los Angeles, and through all the events of the family memorial, we bonded. It wasn't long before Grant became an essential part of my life and healing. He was an excellent role model for Brindy. Before long, Uncle Grant was someone she looked up to, someone she loved. Grant and I were in our 20s, doing our best to find joy, creating adventures in confusing times. Whether we were out on the weekends partying, in Vegas gambling, or camping, we always had a way of having fun. He was non-threatening to me since he was family. He was a safe person to share my thoughts and feelings with, able to handle my truth. While we laughed a lot, he was always there when I had breakdowns. I will forever be grateful for his companionship and tireless efforts to deal with me during a dark, stormy period of life. Grant had an incredible imagination. He was open-minded, making it easier for me to share things that I was studying with him. We played with astral travel, concepts of aliens, and all sorts of out-of-the-box thinking. But mainly, he taught me how to play again and cut loose. 
For the first time in my life, I was able to just be me. I didn't have to filter, prove, or be anything. It was liberating. Everyone needs a grant in their lives. Entirely focused on creating a new life, I put traditional religion behind me. I focused instead on praying, meditating, and studying whatever I could get my hands on. Some books appeared on my path with little clue of where they originated. I was hungry for understanding and eager to feed my soul. I studied psychology, the brain, metaphysics, philosophy, and the order of the universe. I learned about the angels and the hierarchy of the spirit world. I even learned to channel consciously. I studied the Bible, but with different eyes, different ears, and a deeper level of understanding. It was becoming easier to use God instead of calling upon universe or source. It seemed the tragedies in my life opened more of my gifts because they created more questions. Out of necessity, I began to pray more, journal daily, and approach life with more spiritual hunger. Thankfully, there was no demonic or evil activity for months. I was relieved that it all seemed to stop when we left Seattle. I focused on building a new life while my spiritual life was unfolding on its own. Familiar spirit guides returned with gentle communication as I navigated a new level of understanding. One of the first tasks I accomplished when we settled in San Diego was registering Brindy for services at the Children's Hospital Sexual Assault Center. She began a series of counseling sessions with a beautiful soul named Ginger. Ginger taught her how to articulate her feelings. I attended the Parents of Victims support group. Within months, Brindy graduated from the program. There is only so much counseling you can do for a small child that experienced molestation. Ginger said she would have to go back into counseling when things began to surface in her late teens or early 20s. With that behind her, I enrolled Brindy in kindergarten and life moved forward. To say I was angry at the destruction of our lives is an understatement. My daughter's abuse brought up my past abuse. I hadn't processed through the pain of my childhood. With her abuse, I felt utterly betrayed by life, even by God. Nothing made sense. I felt a massive void within me. As the trauma of Brindy's abuse was fading, I found myself in an all-too-familiar state. While I looked okay on the outside, there was a storm brewing inside me. Depression and anxiety surfaced as I went through Brindy's ordeal. With the molest fading into the past, I found myself sinking fast. The shock from all the trauma we experienced faded and the adrenaline needed to get through it had worn off. But a dark ocean of unexpressed emotions, rage, fear, and a sea of confusion began to stir within me. Somehow, 
I was getting through each day at work, paying bills and caring for my daughter. I stopped praying, meditating, and studying as my life got busier. I jumped into my life in San Diego, trying as hard as I could to run from the past. Weekends were spent with Grant, partying and riding motorcycles and whatever adventures we could find. I would lie in bed sobbing in between parties, dancing, and trying to find anything to quiet my mind and emotions. I was doing everything I could to numb my pain. I became an expert at hiding my turmoil with the various men I dated, colleagues, and even friends. I was great at portraying the perfect picture of what everyone expected of me. I'm not saying I didn't have fun. I did, thanks to Grant and a couple of friends. It was the moments alone when all activity stopped that life was hellish and seemingly unbearable. Grant would listen without judgment to an endless cycle of communicating my depressed moods whenever I hit bottom. I spun through several short-lived dysfunctional relationships. Most of the men I dated looked great on paper and were physically attractive, but something was missing. I had buried so much of myself. None of them knew who I was. I was living in survival mode. Superficial materialism was my focus, anything but facing myself and the dark emotions lurking under the surface. In my opinion, men were not to be trusted. I felt none were good enough to meet my daughter. Yet, she wanted a dad to replace the one she lost. One day, as I was pumping gas, she accompanied me to the register. This handsome man walked up behind us, and she asked, Will you marry my mom and be my dad? I was so embarrassed as I quickly apologized and hurried out of the store. I realized I should probably get serious about healing and find a relationship. To heal enough to find a relationship, I had to figure out my life. That meant revisiting my childhood wounds, facing the very things I was doing my best to avoid. Journal entry, December 18, 1997. Depression is my constant companion. I've been in bed or on the couch for several days with little motivation to get up. I've watched movies, read books, and slept. My thoughts are overwhelming and ranging from love to doubts to repulsion. I am reminded of my shortcomings and weaknesses of my longing to be loved, of dreams that come and go, I've questioned life and the meaning of it. Everything has been questioned. I'm sad, have no real reason to be. I'm tired of living such a meaningless life. No horses, singing, dancing, nothing. Laughter only comes when I drink. My existence seems futile. I don't know why it has to seem so bleak. Darkness follows my every step. Blackness engulfs my every breath. I am uncertain of everything. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Gold Factor Podcast. I hope you're enjoying the book. If so, 
follow the podcast and please leave a review. Share it with your friends on social media because you never know who it might help. I invite you to join my Facebook community to connect with a tribe of heart-centered, ambitious people like you. Let's support each other on our paths to purpose and success. You can visit the link in the description or go to facebook.com forward slash the gold factor. I'll see you in the next episode. Be blessed and be a blessing.